Well, if you have your radio station set to 99.5, you know we have officially entered the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap happiest season of all. And there'll be some parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting and maybe even a little caroling out in the snow, right? I, I know for many of you, the, the lead up to Christmas is a very joyous time. And maybe you, you, you are just like Buddy the Elf and you love everything about Christmas, right? You, you love the snow angels and you love the decorations and you love the Toll House cookies and you love Santa. But I know for others of you, uh, this season is more of a mixed bag. That in between those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings and, uh, you know, warm-hearted Hallmark movies that there's a little pain sprinkled in. And I know you're not angry with Christmas. I know you don't blame Christmas, but this season has a way of surfacing things. This season can expose some of our deepest hurts. It's the feeling of loneliness that creeps in when you're watching TV and that Jared commercial comes on and all of a sudden you see these happy couples and they're hugging and kissing and leaning into each other and exchanging these shiny Christmas gifts, and you think to yourself, why can't that be me? You know, how come I'm still single? How, how come I haven't found the one? How come I haven't found Mr. Right? Or you, you get on your Insta account, and you look, and you see all your friends celebrating Christmas with a big family, and you think, how come that can be me? How come, how come I don't have a family yet? Or it's the, the feeling of sadness that's triggered when you walk into the mall and you see all the parents lined up with their kids waiting to see Santa and you can't help but think to yourself, like, gosh, you know, another year is going by and God still hasn't answered my prayer for a child and I'm not going to be able to celebrate the joys of this season with a son or daughter of my own. Or it's the Maybe it's the, the, the feeling of rejection that kind of creeps up on you when you think, this is the year I'm going to go. I'm going to go celebrate Christmas dinner with my parents. And once again, you know, my dad's not going to tell me that he's proud of me or he loves me. Or maybe it's the, it's the feeling of grief that comes from knowing that this year, that you're going you're gonna to set the dining room table with one less chair. Because this year you're not going to celebrate Christmas with a, with a mom or dad for the first time in like 40 or 50 or 60 years. You guys know this already. I'm not telling you anything new. Life can be really awesome at times. And it can be really hard too. There are moments in this life where you just, you want to sing with Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. And then there's also times when you want to cry out with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord, how long? And, and, and this particular season, with, with all its pageantry, has a way of bringing to the surface some of the hard stuff. And you know, there, there, there is a couple in the Bible, there are these two individuals that can relate to the hard stuff, to the pain that comes from 
having some of the deepest longings of your heart go unfulfilled. And, and hopefully you realize that when I'm talking about, you know, deep longings going unfulfilled, I'm not talking about, you know, your team might not make it to the playoffs this year. I'm not talking about you're disappointed because you've, you've played the same lottery numbers every week for the past 23 years and you still haven't won or you know, your Christmas bones turns out to be the subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the hard stuff. I'm talking about you pouring your heart out to God with these very reasonable requests like, God, give me a spouse. Or God, give me the, the restoration of this relationship. God, give me a child. God, please return a wayward son or daughter. You pray these prayers and, and you see nothing happen. There's a song that we've sung around here on a few occasions. It's called Do It Again. And it starts off this way. Walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall. And I suspect that if you've lived long enough, you can relate to that. And, and I'd like to think with you this morning about how we respond when the, when the walls in our life that we, we hoped would fall are still standing. When, when the deepest longings of our heart are still staring us in the face. And if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 5. But before we launch in, let me set this individual story within the context of a larger story, the bigger story. And that's the story of what God is doing in the world. It's the story of redemption. And really, you can think of this story as a three-act drama. So the first act begins in Genesis with the creation and fall of mankind. And it continues with God calling a person and then a nation to be the means of His redemptive plan. In this first act, it highlights the problem of sin in the world, and it ends with the nation of Israel failing to fulfill their divine purpose. But woven throughout this dark tale, there's this glimmer of hope that shines through in these prophetic promises for a, a coming Savior, a Messiah. And as Act 1 comes to a close, we enter into a 400-year intermission. God is silent. But that's about to change. So we're going we're gonna to pick up now with Act 2, Scene 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, he, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth 
will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the word of the Lord. And I want us to zero in now on Zechariah and Elizabeth. What do we learn about them? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Look with me again at verse 5. The first thing we learn is that Zechariah is a priest, and he's married to Elizabeth, who is also a descendant of the priestly line of Aaron. So here we have this very honorable couple, and we know that they come from two very respectable families, and we see that their priestly pedigree is matched by their devotion to God when we go to verse 6. Verse 6 tells us this, that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. So this isn't to say they were perfect. This isn't to say they were sinless. They were still in need of a Savior. But the Bible wants us to know that these, these were upright people. These were people who did the right thing. You know, they, they, they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. They read the Torah. They tithed. They went to the temple at the appropriate times. They, they were good people. They were sincere in their faith. And yet, and yet, life isn't perfect. When we get to verse 7, we discover that they're childless and that they're both advanced in years. So that, that's a nice way of saying that they were old. Seriously. In fact, in, in verse 18, Zechariah says as much, like the angel comes to him and he says, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So even though it's just Zechariah and the angel hanging out in this room, this man is wise enough to know that if he calls his wife old, it's going to get back to her. So <laughs> he, he, he's got this really nice euphemism, but we can read between the lines here. You know, this is a couple that watched the Weather Channel, and Zachariah had Velcro shoes, and they went to dinner at Cracker Barrel at 4.30 in the afternoon. And, and, you know, this makes me wonder, okay? So, we know that they're old. How many years must they have lived with this disappointment? The Bible doesn't give us dates, but we know that back then couples married much younger, and so I, I, I think it's safe for us to conclude that they probably struggled with this for 30 plus years. Imagine that, struggling with infertility that long. And this might not seem like a big deal to some of you. Maybe you don't have a strong desire to have children of your own, but if you've ever talked with someone that has wrestled with infertility, you know how painful this can be. It's, it's heart-wrenching. And you, you can imagine what it must have been like in their home during the holidays when it's time to celebrate the Seder meal and there's no little kids to go and look for the hidden piece of bread 
when it's Hanukkah and there's no laughter of children filling their home. And, and we, we know this must have been a source of just tremendous sorrow for them. We know that back then the, the, the pressure to have children was even greater. And so when you compound their own desire with that social stigma that, had, that, that came from having no kids, we can be confident that this was something that hung heavy in their hearts. And, and here's what we also know. Like, this is something they prayed about. We know this because when the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, what does he say? He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. You know what's interesting to me here? He says, your prayer, singular, has been heard. Not your prayers, plural, have been heard. Like, Zechariah was a priest. I mean, part of his job was praying. He prayed lots of prayers. But when the angel shows up, it's just your prayer has been heard. You know what this tells me? That this was something, this was a petition, this was a request, this was a prayer that Zechariah brought before the Lord so many times that when the angel shows up, doesn't even need to elaborate, doesn't need to specify, it's just your prayer. Do you have a prayer like that? Is there, is there something in your life that you've brought before the Lord countless times? Is, is there something that you've been praying about for decades and it's just kind of become your prayer? Maybe it's a prayer for, for God to bring a, a godly man or a godly woman into your life. Maybe it's a prayer for the salvation of a child. Maybe it's a, a prayer for the restoration of a relationship. Maybe it's a prayer for a child. I, I just I suspect that we all have a prayer like this. Just one thing that keeps coming up again and again and again because of the way that it hangs so heavy in our hearts. And I, and I think the Bible wants to teach us something here. God wants to speak to us through this account. And, he, and here's, here's the first thing that I think he wants us to know. Is that one, that we should we resist the temptation to pursue fulfillment in an illegitimate way. We should resist the temptation to pursue fulfillment in an illegitimate way. See, we can't ever get so tired of waiting on God that we decide that, you know what, God, your, your commands are no longer relevant, and it's just okay for me to go out and to fulfill my desire however I want. If you recall, there was another couple in the Bible, Abraham and Sarah, and they were in a very similar situation as Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were childless, and they decided to take matters into their own hands. How'd that work out for them? only compounded their issues. It compounded the problem. And, and, and I know this is a hard word, but here's what I, I see going on here. Is it, what happened with Zachariah and Elizabeth is as much as they wanted fulfillment, they wanted to be obedient to God even more. And I think that's a godly example for all of us to follow. 
let's just, let's just suppose that you're single and you're a Christian and you would really like a companionship, a relationship with someone. Well, don't go and, 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 and stray from God's commandments and get in a serious relationship with someone who isn't a believer just to try and rectify that. Or, or let's suppose that you're feeling lonely. Don't go and try and solve that by pursuing physical intimacy with someone outside the, the bounds of a marital covenant. Or what about if you're hurting for some other reason? Don't, don't, don't go out and, and try and numb the pain by drinking a lot or taking pills or overeating. What we should do is exactly what we see Zechariah doing. Just continue to bring the matter before the Lord. Continue to hold it before Him. And here's why. Because the second thing this passage teaches us is that we should remember that God can use His no to display His glory and to bring about our ultimate good. So God can use His no to display His glory and to bring about our ultimate good. In this case, I'm sure Zachariah felt like, God, you just, you've turned a deaf ear to me for 30 plus years. But those 30 years of infertility are what set the stage for God to do something special. Their setback was the setup for the miraculous birth of a child who would come and prepare the way for Jesus. Now, we could read this and we could think to ourselves like, well, hey, here's the lesson here. What we're learning is that you know, if you just pray for something long enough, then, then, you know, you're going to get your miracle. And what I do see in Scripture is a command and an exhortation to persist in prayer. I do see that. We, we should continue praying. But what I don't see promised anywhere in Scripture is that, you know, if, if we do certain things, if we fulfill certain requirements that, that, that God will promise as a miracle, if it happened that way, we'd, we'd have to come up with another word for miracle because that's not the way that he works. Rather, rather, what I see God teaching us in this story is that God, God takes our individual stories with all their pain and with all the hurt and that he goes and he weaves them into his larger story, his bigger story. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why should that matter? You know, why is that any comfort to me? Well, I don't feel any better. Is, is it, you know, are, are you kind of like telling me that, uh, that, hey, just realize you're a supporting actor and some really hard things are going to happen to you, but it's going to make the main character look really good. Like, you know, that might not make you feel any better. In fact, you might wonder, like, well, isn't that kind of egotistical of the, of the main character if he's just allowing this hard stuff to happen so that he can look better? And that's a valid question. But the main character answers that objection for us. As we read on in the story, as we read on in Act 2, we see that Jesus allows himself to be arrested and mocked and flogged and crucified on a cross. That's the climax of the whole story. And as we read that, we discover that it wasn't the nails 
that those Roman soldiers hammered into his hands and in his feet that held Jesus to that cross. It was his love for us. It was his love for me and it was his love for you that compelled Jesus to endure that humiliation, to endure the crucifixion. We know that Jesus could have just spoken a word and and he would have had at his disposal 12 legions of angels. That's some serious firepower. But he doesn't call for backup in the situation. He endured the cross and all the shame that came with it. And this tells us something about the heart of the one who's authoring our stories and the one who's taking our story and he's weaving it into the larger story. This tells us that God always has our best interest in mind. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 puts it like this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us, let's say it together, all things. All things. We could, we could frame it like this. Let's just suppose there was someone who, who loved you enough that they would willingly, in a very voluntary way, give their life in exchange for yours. And they, they did this premeditated. Would you, would you have to wonder if that person cared for you? If they did that for you? Of course not. You would know that they cared for you. You, you would know that they loved you. And, that, and that's what the cross does for us. We're assured that God loves us and He wants to give us His very best. And, and even if at times God's very best feels painful and it hurts, we can be assured that God will work all things together for the good of those who love Him. Because see, if, if, if God is powerful enough to conquer the grave, we know that He is powerful enough to take our weeping and to turn it into rejoicing. He can do that. Like Billy and Mariana said in the video, we don't always get to see how God's at work. But because of, because of the cross, we know that He is at work. And just like God did with Zechariah and Elizabeth, He's going to take our story and He is going to weave it together with His story in a way that's going to display His glory and it's going to bring about our ultimate good. And just like with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the end result is going to be joy and gladness of heart. Do you recall what Zechariah was supposed to name his son? Anybody remember? It was John. Anybody know what John means? It means God is gracious. So every time Zechariah looked at his son or called his name, he was reminded of this truth that God is gracious. And you know, Jesus wanted us to be reminded of this same truth. In fact, it was so important to him. He didn't want us just to hear it. He wanted us to experience it. So the Bible tells us that on the night he was betrayed, that Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, 
This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Bible goes on to tell us that as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So this morning, when you, when you hold the bread and you taste the bread, may you be reminded that God is good. May you be reminded of the climax of God's story of redemption. When Jesus hung on a cross in your place to purchase your redemption. And as you partake of the cup, may you be reminded that the best is yet to come. May you be reminded of what's ahead. May you be reminded of how Act 3 ends with us drinking together with Jesus in our Father's kingdom. The scriptures go on to tell us that whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in a moment, I'm just going to allow some space for personal reflection and then I'll close this in a prayer. And if you've never made a decision to trust Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that when I pray. And if you're still discerning, as that passage talks about, if you're not ready to make that decision, just invite you when you receive the elements, you can just go ahead and pass them to the person next to you. Don't, don't worry about participating. And we hope this time is still meaningful for you as you contemplate your relationship with Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. God, we thank you that we can trust you with our hurt and our pain and with our deep longings. Thank you for reminding us that you're a God who hears, that you're a God who's aware of these things, and that you're a God that intends to do something about them. And God, I, I, I pray this morning for those of us that will have some things surfaced this particular season that relate to the deep longings of our heart. And I pray that you would be the God of all comfort. I pray that you would be the Father of compassion. I pray that you would minister to us in ways that only you can. And God, I pray for the person whose greatest need of all this morning is for a right relationship with you the person who needs to be transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son, the person that needs hope and everlasting life. If that's you, I just invite you to pray a prayer like this in the quietness of your heart. Say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. 
I know that my sin separates me from you. And I thank you for sending Jesus to bear the punishment for my sin. And I want to place my faith in him. And I pray that you would forgive me of my sins and that you would credit the perfect righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, to my account. And I thank you for doing that. And now it's my desire to live for you all of my days. Amen.